0: So I want to say a little bit this morning about um about thoughts and images in in meditation. Uh and again just conscious of uh, uh, the diversity in the room in, in terms of people's backgrounds, experience, directions of uh, what you're exploring in practice. So hopefully something can be said uh that's helpful for for everyone. Uh, <clears throat> First thing, perhaps, about this area about thought and image and meditation is is that again, it's not so simple. The whole situation is not so simple. Um, it's not only that thought is a problem, something to be rid of. It certainly can be a problem, and I think everyone is is uh, quite aware of that uh, how much we can feel uh, plagued by thought and badgered and uh, beaten up by thought dragged this way and that under the thumb of thought uh, and actually in a way we are under the thumb of thought uh, in very obvious ways and in really quite subtle ways that may not be obvious at all at all. And there's different levels of, of the way we are captive to the thinking mind and, and the whole realm of thought. So it can be a problem, but as well, uh, we can actually use thought and image and use uh, learn to use them mindfully and creatively and very powerfully uh, in order to open up uh, many things, in order to cultivate many Lovely qualities, in order to open up insights, many kinds of insights, and many kinds of freedom, freedoms, plural. <clears throat> well, let's start where, uh, with sort of obvious, obviously problematic situations. Um, sometimes, w- 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 whether it's in formal meditation or not, you know, the mind feels thick with thought but not necessarily about one thing in particular. It's kind of random, it's just scattered. Really important here, uh, again, a lot of this overlaps with uh, the talk about calming, not to get too reactive, too much aversion. Is it possible to be with this and soften the reactivity, soften the aversion to it? One possibility is actually when the mind is, is... buzzing like that, the body will actually be buzzing as well. There'll be reflected in the body a kind of uh, probably unpleasant buzz that's that's the kind of mirror of all this uh, stuff happening in the mind. So without needing to actually push away the thought, one can go to the body, tune into that buzz, and work on just allowing it, allowing it, really, really turning that allowing dial up to 11 as... It says in Spinal Tap. When the mind is scattered, we say say spaced out. Actually, it's a state of contraction. When the mind is scattered, it's actually a state of contraction. And again, overlapping with the uh, talk on calming, contraction, clinging, this will be mirrored in the body. And I can go there and deal with it at that level, work with it at that level. If if what you're trying to do in in a meditation period is actually try to stay with one object, whatever it is, the breath or whatever, um, can be really helpful. And there is a lot of thick, thick thought, random thought around. Really helpful to open up a little space, open up a little space in the practice. Get the, get the sense of the whole body involved. Sometimes the mind is a bit like a gas. If if we squeeze it, it increases its. Uh, was it Boyle's Law or whatever? In, who did O-level physics? <laughs> I think when you, when you put a gas under pressure, it increases the temperature. Basically, the molecules start flying around faster. The mind's a bit like that. Squeeze it too tight has exactly the opposite effect of what we want. Exactly the opposite. So this is related also to effort levels. Again, overlap with, with the last talk on, on calming. And you can see this uh, sometimes, you know, if, if in outside of retreat. If you have a very busy day. You've been at work. And your mind's very full from the day at work, etc. And you sit down if you do an evening practice or, or whatever. And, and you want to kind of squeeze the mind into shape. And it has exactly the opposite effect of of what's intended. Oftentimes better to just just chill for a little while. Be there. Be present. But open out. Relax. Soften. Just be with what's going on allowing this uh, turmoil to move through and actually that can allow the mind to settle then it can pick up its object much better if it, if that's what it wants to do if that's what you want to do so there's a word sometimes called drifting it, it it means the the attention drifts away from the object and gets caught up in thoughts and images or there's a lot of thoughts and images a very common state. It's a subtle form of restlessness. It's a very very common uh, in meditation. It's hard to know in the moment when that's happening and the mind is skidding off like that. Too many thoughts in the mind. It's hard to know do I need a bit more effort here? Hang on to that object? Or do I need to back off and a little less? Could be either. Could be either. Experimentation is absolutely crucial we can't get away from it for, for in terms of the art of meditation it's a real art here it's not It's not a formula there is no formula it's a bit like surfing which I've never been surfing but I imagine that uh, I don't know what's going to happen the, w- the way the wave is going to move the way the wind is going to move the way I'm going to need to counter respond to the movement that I've just made in terms of balancing it's, it's like that it's improvised skillful, sensitive, improvised, experimental response to what's happening. And a lot of it is very, very delicate. So effort and how much thought in the mind are actually intimately connected. And this question of effort, um, it doesn't go away in practice. It never goes away. You never get beyond it or it's sorted. What happens is it gets more and more subtle. More and more subtle, very, very subtle, this question of effort. It just gets more and more subtle. It's part of the art. Uh, And so we need to kind of get our heads around that and realize that, incorporate it, make friends with it, with this question of effort, with this um, playing with effort. Even at much deeper levels, when a person is exploring jhan- jhanas and and sort of the jhanic territory, very deep absorption and lo- lovely states of mind, curious thing ha- very often happen. Mind is very locked in to a state of bliss or peace or wh- whatever it is, and and then it slips, and and the mind is off for a moment or a few moments or whatever it is. And then it comes back, the mind comes back. And oftentimes in returning, a person finds it comes back to a deeper level. The whole bliss or peace or whatever has gone deeper to it's gone the whole quality has shifted another gear. How did that happen? Well I I didn't make it happen. The mind just slipped. You would think the opposite. What's going on there? I don't know, but to me it suggests maybe just a hair's a whisker's too much effort the relaxing of the effort and actually spacing out a little bit and losing mindfulness actually seem to do the process good. Strange. So this whole business has a lot, like I said last time, a lot to do with delicacy, delicacy of attention. If we can make the attention delicate, whatever practice we're doing and actually... Uh, c- support, nourish a sense of that delicacy of attention. Oftentimes, uh, the, in, the whole practice kind of shifts to another level of interest. We start to notice uh, other other levels of, of uh, experience, other factors. A much more refined perception can open out, and that stimulates the interest and the curiosity. When that's there then the mind is less scattered in in thought. So how to get interested and curious in in the whole thing. When when there is this kind of random sort of thickness of thought, patience is so key. And I'm sure you've recognized this in your own practice, but sometimes it shifts very slowly. It's just plugging away patiently, gently plugging away. And sometimes it shifts really like on a dime just from one moment to the next it was was all this stuff going on and then somehow it just lifted like a fog just lifted so we don't know what's going to happen you just keep keep working pa- patiently and, and it lifts either slowly or suddenly now sometimes of course the mind has less thought going on it's a little less dense and uh, thick with thought and then It's interesting, you can, again, start to work a little bit more subtly. The mind is following a train of thought, pulled in a train of thought, and actually, a little bit of mindfulness comes in, a little bit of um, questioning. Do I need to finish this thought? Do I really need to finish it? Am I going to be happier at the end of this thought for having followed it through? Actually, some thoughts I I will be marginally happier, but most not, Uh, some actually... A, a negative effect so actually if there's enough mindfulness actually catching oneself in a train of thought and, and literally halfway through a thought, I don't need to go to the end necessarily, what if I just cut it, what if I just cut it I mean, not just cut it, actually feel when I cut it what does that feel like and there will be some degree of relief, of uh, ease, of spaciousness perhaps. That is really, really important to feel. Really important to feel that in the body. The feeling of the relief in the body, it's like it cements the insight. Oh yeah, that tastes good. I can taste that, feels good to let go of the thought. Then I learn something, I learn it through the body. This is good. We're, we're so addicted to uh, thinking that these little uh, moments of tasting the ease of that actually really, really begin to add up. They begin to teach us something. Some people sometimes uh, find labeling thoughts helpful. So, for example, uh, not just recognizing that thinking is going on, but actually what, what kind of thought is it? planning, noticing, oh it's planning, or it's uh, whatever it is, judging, remembering, fantasizing, whatever. And actually this, sustaining that kind of labeling can be really, really helpful in terms of um, gaining some perspective, some spaciousness and quietening the mind a little bit. Uh, It's as if through the label the mindfulness finds a foothold. It's got something to push itself up on that label and and raise the energy of mindfulness. My, the energy of mindfulness needs to be greater than the energy of, of the thinking and then, and then the, the process deepens. So that labeling serves that function. It also, if you like, uh, it kind of objectifies, it gives a sense of objectification in terms of the thought that's going on, a sense of distance or spaciousness, less entanglement. Can be re- can be really helpful, and of course, if one does that for a little bit, you begin to notice uh, the tendencies of the mind. Oh, that's interesting. I'm always, well, I tend to mostly think about the past, or I tend to mostly think about the future, whatever it is, or planning or judging. It, it, we recognize what the habits, the particular sort of uh, streams that the mind are mind habitually finds its way down good to know one's tendencies good to know what's my particular uh, version of trouble that I wrap myself in good to know that but then also the investigation can start there we'll say more about that later now Of course we all know as human beings sometimes the mind gets into obsession the thinking is so uh, oppressive we're so caught up with something or other and uh, these thoughts are just looping around around or we feel we're looping around around something orbiting caught in an orbit unable to uh, remove ourselves from that orbit remove the mind we can say quite a lot about this and how to work with it skillfully, what's helpful here. Um, One thing, though, is, you know, this returning the mind over and over to its object, it really does build that muscle that I was talking about the other day. Over time, the, the capacity to move the mind out of what is difficult and unwholesome actually really grows. We really get that ability to do that more and more. But it it accrues over time, develop it over time. If you're caught in obsessive thinking, one thing that can actually help is sweeping, scanning through the body, uh, the body sensations. What's happening there is the attention is actually moving rather than being stuck on something. The very movement through physical space of the attention, through the body, and you can move quite quickly up and down, scanning the sensations, uh, that actually helps to to move the attention kind of get a little uh, elbow room in there. Well, it's interesting though because sometimes as meditators, you know, we're beset by a state like this and we think, well, I should deal with it. I need to deal with it on my cushion, etc. in the in the meditation hall. But sometimes we need another person. And sometimes I need to share something or talk with another. And so not not to forget that. But again, not so simple, because sometimes talking with, with another person really, really helpful, really so helpful. And sometimes not helpful at all. Actually can make it worse. Talking, talking about my issue, my problem again. What makes the difference? What is it that makes the difference when we talk to another that we, it seems to help or not help? And compassion obviously is key. When, uh, when you feel compassionately listened to, that field of that, that softness, that receiving, make, makes a big difference, it can. But there are other factors involved. One of, them, one of them has to do with beliefs. So we can talk to another, and they think they're being empathic, oh yes, yes, I agree, he is terrible, it's awful, etc. Yes, yes, everything's being reinforced. A view, a belief, assumption is being reinforced through the talking. And the very repeating it in words is just wrapping it tighter sometimes. So this actually leads on to another possibility when there's a lot of obsession, when the mind is really caught in that, is questioning, dropping in a question, really powerful questions. What am I believing here? What am I believing Hugely important. Often, often, obsession, obsessive thinking actually rests on beliefs and assumptions without which it it cannot exist. And we don't see what they are. It's it's a deeper level. Oftentimes they're about uh, what I believe I need or what I believe I need to be happy. And resting on that, this whole vortex of obsessive thinking. Or I believe it means this or that about me if this or that happens. And that's bad. Something like that. If there's a hindrance, A very mundane example. If there's a hindrance in meditation, restlessness or sloth or desire or something. And that I take that presence of that hindrance and I make a conclusion about the self from it wrong mistake wrong view wrong assumption or that it means something bad about my practice about me or in a relationship situation and the person says they they're not interested in you or they no longer want to be in a relationship or whatever rejection is it really a rejection is that what that really means and even if it is what does it mean about me? Does it mean anything about me? And if if they are rejecting me because I'm so-and-so, and I really am like so-and-so, is that really so bad? <laughs> assumptions, assumptions, assumptions. Question. Questioning is so, so hugely important in practice. And, and again, it's an art. So it needs a kind of... Um, Firm, f- we you know what is it to question firmly to have a, a boldness in our questioning, or or a playfulness or both, an impishness. What is it to be cheeky in one's questioning, as well as strong? And sometimes when we do that, we start to it's like you you are you're, uh, you're cracking the the foundations of what this obsessive thinking whirlpool is resting on this whole structure is resting on and and the whole thing can dissolve because you've seen through some of the foundations of it <coughs> but sometimes not also sometimes not sometimes that's not enough I'm going to throw out an idea somewhat dangerous perhaps um Maybe when it doesn't, when it doesn't dissolve, maybe there's something necessary. Necessary in that pain, necessary in that whole construction, necessary, if we use a certain language, to the soul, to the psyche. Necessary for me to have to build all this crazy building. Maybe there's something necessary. Necessary. And maybe it's not that it's necessary because it's stuff from my past and my family and my childhood and all that coming up for healing. Maybe it's necessary for other reasons. The idea that I need to go through this because it's, or this is stuff coming up from us of view. that's an assumption too. Could there be reasons sometimes for craziness, for building craziness? Anyway, questioning belief, very important. The other factor or condition uh, on which obsession, obsessive thinking often rests, is an emotion. It's wrapped up in an emotion. It's actually Uh, All this mental activity is actually resting on some emotion that's uh, kind of stuck there, Uh, if you like, beneath, again, as a kind of foundation from some perspectives. It's, again, so helpful. Go to the body, check out what's happening. If you find yourself caught in a lot of thinking, what's happening in the body? Is there some emotion present that I haven't quite picked up on fully, haven't quite recognized? And what is it to contact that emotion? And actually, come in into uh, in, in touch with it, <clears throat> and then address it. And how do I address this emotion, whatever it is? What is helpful? What does this emotion need? That's what it means to address it. What is what is helpful here? That question, the golden question in Dharma practice. What is helpful? Sometimes all it needs is this emotion to be recognised and to be held. It just needs holding, presence a caring of holding, being there with. Do I I know how to do that in meditation? Really, really important skill. Sometimes it needs me, again, to do something in life off the cushion about that emotion. Sometimes I might need to give something to myself or to that emotion. Again, these are all skills to discern and then to act. Sometimes when there's a lot of commotion, a lot of obsession going on, find the emotion, and then actually going even down a level, so to speak, right, if you like, at the center of that emotion is uh, the vedana of the emotion in the body. Caroline talked about vedana the other day, this, this quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality. So what is it? Here's all this obsession... I find the body and the emotion in the body, and then within that emotion, in the body, I tune in, very delicate, to the Vedana, changing, moment to moment, probably unpleasant, somewhere in the body. And I just stay lightly with that, letting it be what it is, moment to moment, letting it be, letting it be. Just right present, and then present, if you like, at, at what could be the simplest level of what's going on. So, something's happening there, I'm simplifying the whole attention by tuning in to the simplest level, and that can simplify the whole thing. If I can just stay there, just stay there, where it's difficult but in quite a subtle way. But there are many possibilities here. I might be angry, I might find I'm consumed and obsessed with this story, and there's lots of anger of and again I go to the body and just hold this feeling, this pressure, this heat of anger in the body <clears throat> and I find in doing that if I can hold it skillfully it begins to, it may, begin to release, dissolve and it's as if the mind traces down and begins to reveal the hurt perhaps underneath the anger. That's the, the kind of more of a, uh, a, a bed core of what's going on it's a deeper level probably uh, better there'll be more healing at that level at the level of hurt if i can contact the hurt better if i need to talk to someone to talk from the sense of hurt than just of reactive anger but equally it might be that Here's this obsession, this papancha, and this story that goes around. Again, I go into the body, and what I find is anger. And is it possible to filter out the quality of strength from the anger? We tend to dismiss anger as something always bad, but maybe it has something really positive in it, a quality of strength. And I can feel that strength and feel it fill the body. It's almost like I'm purifying the anger in a certain sense. Through the body. But it's also hard, you know, sometimes, again, if we take anger as an example, some of the mind might be Uh, filled with angry thoughts. And actually I need to listen to those thoughts rather than just treat them as papancha, a story to be gotten rid of. Maybe there's something in there. Maybe this ranting inside, raging and ranting, I actually need to listen to that. And then in listening to it, I can get a sense, is this just a petty circling that I'm involved in? Or actually, is it my voice is my voice emerging and asserting itself and maybe it hasn't had the chance maybe it's been trodden on for a while and this anger is actually something positive i need to listen to that voice because it's my voice it's the voice of my truth my authenticity so it's hard you know sometimes because a, an emotion is this combination of body and thought and and the reaction to both what's going on in body and in thought Happens with anger. Happens with fear. Fear too. There's unpleasant body sensations, and there's also a lot of thinking spinning. The problem is these two start interacting. They get entangled, and then they feed back off each other like a, uh, you know, when when you put a microphone next to a speaker, it starts feeding back, and it all gets louder and louder, unpleasantly. So what can be really helpful in practice is actually seeing that the body aspects and the thought aspects get entangled, start feeding back and actually disentangle them in practice just by focusing on one or the other. starts to disentangle them a little bit. Sometimes we move toward the thought and sometimes toward the body. Not always obvious which. Body is usually a good bet. So there's certainly difficulty with thought at, at this more obvious level. Sometimes uh, when the mind is a bit more settled in meditation, there's a, there's a really lovely possibility that's there and uh, very powerful in the long term as well, very beautiful. If, if I just allow the awareness to kind of open up and be aware of the body sensations as a whole, this whole field here of body sensations, flickering, coming and going, arising and passing, this dance, like a cornucopia of just body sensations happening in this space. And I just abide there with that openness to body sensations. And then when I feel okay with that, maybe I open it further and include sounds. And sounds coming from, it's actually very quiet today, but birds and planes and coming from all different directions, all different distances, and then I'm sitting in a very open awareness, listening and with the body sensations, and just hanging out there, letting everything be, letting everything be, letting things belong to this space, the sensations, the sounds. After a while, something will happen, thoughts will begin to include themselves in that space. Just as another phenomena, just like sounds, just like body sensations. And it's all just flickering in the space. A thought, a body sensation, a sound. Just, I don't know if any of you saw the fireworks last night. Just stuff arising, colorful maybe, maybe not so colorful, in the space, and then disappearing. And somewhere else, like a shooting star, just arising, wow, and disappearing. And the space kind of remains unperturbed. Get that sense. Can accommodate, can receive it all. Very, very beautiful sense here. Uh, Our job is just to see that, let everything come, let everything go, let everything be in that space. The space begins to open up and the perception begins to open up body sensations, sounds, and thoughts begin to seem more insubstantial, more inconsequential as well. What's happening there? Something very, very important is happening. One thing is that we're less hooked to thought. Usually we have a thought, we follow it, or we're entangled with it, want to get rid of it, or something. But here is an unhooking, an unhooking, phenomena can just be in the space unhooked and also secondly unidentified less identification usually we take a thought as meaning something about me it was a cruel thought a judging thought, an ugly thought it means I'm cruel, I'm judging, I'm ugly does it? or is it just a thought just like a firework in the space just something belongs to the space unhooked, unidentified more and more something very important can happen in that space getting a different perspective different perception on the whole realm of thinking and thoughts and if that's repeated one off it probably won't do much just a lovely experience but repeated and repeated this begins long term to change our relationship on the, on the whole realm of thinking just change the relationship less a slave of thought less uh, badgered by thought so really really I'm being very brief skidding getting through a lot of stuff but a uh, very beautiful possibility there to to cultivate, to explore <clears throat> Okay, so I said at the beginning that actually we can also use thoughts and images very skillfully, very creatively with mindfulness. Uh, very, very helpful. Now, actually, if we think about, think about thoughts, um, there's obvious instances of this anyway. If you, if you use the classical way of doing metta and using phrases, uh, well, well, the phrases are thoughts, aren't they? And you, they're skill, skillfully used thoughts. Even in a breath practice, and I was describing in the last talk on calming um, you thinking a little bit about what 's engendering well being and about how how it 's going can actually be really skillful in the moment, very delicate thinking about the breath, about the practice and again uh, when when things deepen in into the more jarnic territory and that deep absorption, etc, sometimes the mind gets so. Um, suggestive it's so suggestive at that point you can just drop in a little grain of sand a word like rapture or bliss or joy drop it in to the pool this grain of sand and it ripples out and the mind becomes what was suggested to it skillful use of thinking very delicate at a certain level the mind will be suggestible like that You begin to see actually using thought and and gross thought subsides and then just subtle thinking is left. There's only subtle thinking left. And one realizes actually there is this spectrum, gross to subtle like everything, of thinking. Very, very subtle. But of course also like with insight practices, you know, um, reflecting on death is use of... of, uh, of thought, reflecting on ethics and how I'm living my life and the choices that I'm making. Especially now, we live in a, you know, globalised world where our ethical choices have massive implications. Huge. Uh, approaching emptiness also through analysis in some traditions, mental analysis, logic. There's also images possibility of using images skillfully, and in, in, actually in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the Mindfulness Sutta, Buddha talks about imagining yourself in a cemetery, and seeing rotting corpses, etc., using the imagination, or with loving kindness, if you imagine your friend or whoever it is, see them smiling, interesting effect. Wishing them happiness, see them happy. See what that does to the practice. Or see them bathed in light, permeated with white golden light. What does that do? It's a skillful use of imagery. Or working with your own breath and the own body. What is it to imagine that you're breathing light? Or imagine that the body has become light, either with the same form or with a more amorphous form. Just light, imagining it, see what happens. Very potentially, very powerful, skillful use of the imagination. Or to feel, to imagine that the whole body is breathing. You're breathing through your legs as well. Well, legs have no tubes there for uh, anatomically. But you can still imagine and feel it. And the imagination leads to the feeling and the sense and that starts opening things up. Lots of possibilities. And of course, um, if we go further, you know the whole idea of um, using an image of a deity. So Tara or Avalokiteshvara, Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, Christ, and imagining that deity or it might be a more fearsome deity like Yamantaka, one of the uh, wrathful deities, or a spontaneous image that emerges from within, so to speak, not a prescribed, preordained image. When, again, when, when there's a certain amount, of somebody, when, particularly when there's a certain amount of letting go deeply, it opens up a whole door to a realm of of what we could call the imaginal. And I don't just mean, if some of you know this word nimitta, where a sort of geometric, uh, light geometric design comes up and you focus on that. I mean other images that have a life uh, seem to have a a, a dynamic vitality of, of their own. So yes, when there's a lot of letting go in samadhi, but also, interestingly, when there's a lot of upset, When you're quite upset, sometimes right then, actually, there's enough energy in the mind from the upset for it to uh, offer forth an image that if I find the right way of relating to it, can actually be really, really helpful. Depends if, can I use it well? So all this is, you know, massive area. I just want to say one or two things. Uh, actually because I know that it's relevant for a few of you here. So here's this image that might have come up and I can, if you like, we can just relate to that image. Uh, There it is and here I am. That's the sense. And maybe I'm relating to it with a sense of devotion. Maybe I'm relating to it through dialogue, inner dialogue. Maybe I'm just relating it through a sense of beauty or awe, just beholding the image And through that, a certain resonance is happening. This being is resonating with that image and and what that image (coughs) is. Or, one takes oneself as that image. One takes that image as if it's oneself. One becomes that image. One becomes that deity, that being. So all this, this whole realm of practice, needs a lot of mindfulness. It's not daydreaming, it needs a lot of mindfulness and a lot of sensitivity, uh, especially to the body, to the emotions, to the energies, to the resonances that are happening. Some of it is very, very subtle, can be very, very subtle. So just like the Buddha talks about anapanasati, mindfulness of in and out breathing, uh, and, th- and if you read the sutta, it's talking a lot about coaxing and cultivating certain qualities. You can actually also talk about image sati, if you like. Uh, mindfulness of images and similarly um, coaxing and cultivating certain qualities through that. So it's not so much just like the mind coming in and saying, oh this image represents this and putting it in a box. Then it goes dead a little bit, it's too much I've categorized something. I've lost the uh, vitality, the interaction, the nuance, the aliveness, the depth of what's happening. What is happening there? If I'm if I'm following this uh, possibility, there's an image and if you like beholding that image or holding it there, there's an energetic and emotional resonance that's happening. That image, Christ or Kuan Yin or some fierce deity, it actually radiates or expresses, embodies certain qualities and in holding it there, start to resonate with those qualities, start to absorb some of those qualities. Or through becoming it again. Those qualities are increased. Just like in metta practice or samadhi practice, we're cultivating qualities. It's a huge part of practice. It's just that here in the realm of images, there's a greater range opened up. Much greater range of qualities and expressions. And again, i link this back to the last talk about Calming. Because here in this realm of images may be certain kinds of expressions of whatever, strength, vitality, sexuality, certain kinds of expressions of sexuality. Someone the other day used the word femininity, feminine kind of sexuality, or masculine kind, you know, whatever words you want to use, of power, of dynamism. The range is expanded, much expanded. If, you're, if you are playing with, with some of this, uh, it's not only that this or that quality, like it's only compassion that goes with this image or whatever. It's not, it's not so simple as that. Actually, this practice can be quite unexpected in what it opens up, quite unexpected. It's not, again, not formulaic, not formulaic. Some understandings emerge through holding this, this uh, thing that's happening this image. And like all practices, the more subtle, usually the more powerful. A lot of it is very, very subtle. doesn't have to be so prescribed as sometimes the way we hear about it. So there's cultivation possible through images. There's freedoms possible. They can open up different freedoms, freedoms of certain kinds of expression. But also something else, what could we say a flexibility of self view an elasticity of self view part of the problem with the sense of self and the view of self is it gets too solidified I am this or I am that I see myself in only these rigid ways through actually this skillful use of images actually that starts getting elastic and the whole thing if as long as I'm not identifying them with this newfound image of myself so it's it's an as if it's taken very lightly, and then all this fluidity, this room for maneuver, this elasticity comes in to the sense of self, hugely important for understanding the emptiness of self, getting that space for freedom. A person might hear all this and say but that that's not that can't be right because that's not being with what is if you're playing with images and and things like that. That's not being with what is. It's not, uh, you you know, you're fabricating something. You're making something there. It's not what my experience is. It's not being with my experience. We're going to get more into this, but that kind of concern, understandable, is not realizing something. It's not realizing that actually we're always imagining. We're always imagining we're always fabricating. Anytime we perceive anything, something is being fabricated. We'll come back to that. So sometimes, you know, a person might have the idea that, um, I've actually heard this many, many times from meditators, that the idea is not to think to get, be free, get be rid of thought. Um, it's not, that's not the goal here. That's not the goal of meditation. It's certainly possible that that can happen as a state, sure. Uh, and it can be very lovely. Um, but I can't live without thinking, can I? Well, not going to be a very interesting life. I can't live, how am I going to, how am I going to go Shopping. I can't, I can't live without thinking. More fundamentally, shopping is important for the growth economy. Uh, <laughs> uh, what's, the, what's the problem with thinking? What is the problem with thought? The most pervasive and fundamental problem is actually when the views wrapped up in thinking are believed. That's the, the sort of ground level problem with thinking and thought. When the views expressed or wrapped up or underneath a thought are believed and the, and they lead to suffering. When some view is believed and it leads to suffering, that's the problem. That's the fundament, more fundamental problem. So, you know, when we talk about questioning beliefs or we talk about... Um, opening up this other much wider sense of awareness and seeing the ephemerality and the insubstantiality of thought. When we talk about skillful use of different images, we're actually undermining beliefs, we're shaking up beliefs and shaking up views. Deliberately or relativizing them or just taking their ground away. This is the problem, views, views. Not thoughts, views. Views that lead to suffering. That's the problem. And, and if we say, views are this big, thoughts is actually just one end of that, of that spectrum of views. Even when thought gets quiet, there's a whole, what we could call, uh, conceivings. I don't know if that's the right English word. More subtle views. This is where the problem is, in that range, in the range of views views that lead to suffering so we can question beliefs like we question self view am i really am i really this kind of person am i really uh, you know just this or whatever is that really the truth of me we can question beliefs but a lot of the views and conceivings are not articulated we're not even conscious of them we're not even conscious yet they're operating They determine what we give significance to in any moment in perception. They determine what gets drawn out of the field of impressions, what I notice, what meaning I give things. All of this is determined by view and a lot of it is not even conscious. This thing coming up and I, it means this or I interpret it this way or about practice and where practice is going and like we talked about the different archetypal expressions all this is view some of it is conscious a lot of it isn't beliefs, assumptions, views, conceptions guide, structure, shape, colour and fabricate perception, meaning experience. Beliefs, assumptions, views, conceptions, guide, structure, shape, color, and fabricate experience. Our word, our English word idea, I just found this out, our English word idea is actually from the Greek, idain, I think that's how you say it, which actually means to see, to see we see by means of ideas. Ideas, views, conceptions, again, quite subtle, they shape our sight, meaning the way we experience, the way we look at things. And the word also in Greek, eidos, uh, used by the early people like Plato, uh, to mean what one sees, and also that by means of which one sees. In other words, we see, we experience by means of certain Structures of ideas, frameworks of concepts, etc. Everything depends on this. Everything depends on this. Everything, right here. We might assume, no, I perceive the world, I experience the world, and based on what I what I see and experience, I make certain rational conclusions about things, and those are my views. Ha 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 ha. Certainly, a little bit, but how much the other way round, how much the other way round, and what rests on that other way round, what rests on that, based on these co- conceivings, the world appears now i 'm going to say something which actually one has to see it in meditation i can 't prove it to you, but um, you have to kind of go deep enough to see it, but actually there's always a conceiving wrapped up in any experience of anything, no matter how subtle, no matter how open, there's always some conceiving happening wrapped up in it. If I'm mindful, if I'm being with something without thought, there's still views and conceivings operating. Just the notion of a subject even without a personality, just an awareness, knowing objects in the world, whatever they are, subject-object duality. The notion of time, a past, a future, the notion even of a present moment, conceiving. The notion that something exists or doesn't exist, how else can we even think about things, or feel things, conceiving, all of this. And this is the root problem. This right here is the root problem, the root of dukkha. This is what the Buddha was pointing at, this level. Why? Why is that the root problem? To suffer, to have dukkha, I need to believe in the reality of things. If I don't think something's real, I'm not going to suffer over it, whether that's the self or some other object that I have to experience or don't have to, or I'm not able to, whatever it is have to believe in the reality on this conceiving of real things rests all dukkha it's the sine qua non the, the absolute fundamental <clears throat> in coming through Zen teachings and now quite popular there is this idea of, um, no thinking, no thought, no mind sometimes and I don't know Chinese at all, but I just wonder sometimes whether actually, because Chinese is quite, a uh, unlike English, is, is quite a poor language, whether they don't differentiate between, say, thinking and the absence of thinking, which is just a meditative state, and conceiving. And actually, what's really being meant is no conceiving, beyond conception, meaning the true nature of things is beyond existing and not existing, It's beyond time. It's beyond subject-object. Notions that are so woven in to our very experience of anything. And actually, that's what's really being said. It's been translated in a more superficial way Seeing the emptiness of these concepts, seeing the unreality, seeing the emptiness of all things, the deepest meaning of emptiness means to be beyond concept, that's somehow where we need to eventually open up to. Something needs to open to. But if we're barely aware of this, if it's present even when we're not thinking, if they're so subtle, how am I going to recognize all this? How am I going to recognize what the assumptions are, what the views and conceivings are? And how on earth am I going to go beyond them? So there, even with mindfulness, being really mindful of this thing, no thinking, really there, still there. How am I going to go beyond it? How am I going to free the mind from that? how am I going to let go of these conceivings so actually that's what I want to talk about maybe another time later on in the retreat but um it may actually require the skillful use of thought, the skillful use of eidos, if we use that Greek word, of of subtle shifts in conceiving that actually open things up, bring more malleability and flexibility into the perception. And then this starts to reveal something, this starts to unwrap, unbind something, revealing the emptiness. As I said, well, Ho- hopefully, uh, if as the retreat goes on, we, we'll get a chance to talk about that. Okay. So, let's have a few quiet moments together. <laughs>